You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiance, and her boyfriend walked into a bar. This week's decent human being is Eileen. She's got a fucked up story about addiction. Sit it. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode is going to be Positively Terrible. Hey, Scott. Dan, what's going on, man? Oh, geez, I just flubbed the intro a little bit. But other than that, I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Yeah, you know, I am alive for another day. uh, So I'm not going to complain too much. We can do that offline. I don't think the listeners want to hear that. But nobody's got time for that. I I absolutely heard you flub the intro, Dan. And I want to focus on that for a minute. How are you feeling? (laughs) Yeah. Now I feel flustered. I'm nervous. I don't know if you could see my neck getting warmer below my gray beard, but uh, yeah. Did you say great or gray? Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. Good answer. And today we've got Eileen. Uh, Eileen, hi. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you guys? Uh, I'm I'm doing all right. Um, So Eileen... Why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about why you're here today? Yeah, yeah. So I am a uh, recovering alcoholic and addict. Um, I just hit 10 years, a celebratory 10 years uh, last nice. month. Yeah. Um, and I am someone who uses my recovery and my sobriety to fuel creative work. So I also do theater performance and writing and poetry and uh, and lots of times that will have to, that will be influenced by my recovery. For sure. And a lot of times we, very cool. We save this type of stuff for the end, but I am going to ask you, you've got exciting times happening right now. What is going on uh, this weekend and, and through the month of October for you? Yeah. So I'm currently directing a, uh, play in Chicago called Household Spirits. We have our second preview weekend this weekend, and we officially open next Friday. Um, oh, awesome! Yeah, and so that runs for about a month, and it's a it's a new play by Mia McCullough that is about alcoholism, mental illness, suicide, blended families, and it is a comedy. So, <laughs> and what was the name of that? It's called Household Spirits, and it's playing at Theater Wit. Household Spirits yeah. coming out mid-October. Mm-hmm. Is anyone going to be disappointed if they think they're going to a Halloween show? <laughs> no. There, there may or may not be um, spooky things at play. So Good. there's, Good there's answer. a reason that... Oh. Oh, spirit. Oh, wow. Dan, you picked up on something that I never did. Well, I have the childlike magic that comes to my brain during October, Scott. (laughs) Your cold, bitter heart will never know the joys of Halloween like I do. Oh, I'm just going to go out and buy myself some of the full-size candy bars and keep them for me. And it'll be a very, very pleasurable Halloween for me. So, Eileen. Um, welcome to the show and and thanks for coming and just kind of want to dive right in a little bit. Um, you said you're here to talk about addiction. So let's roll back the clock and go back to a a younger time in life. You said you've been, uh, in recovery for 10 years now. Um, when, well, actually just talk a little bit about yourself when you were younger, like high school growing up, what, what were you like? I was really cool. Uh, no, I was <laughs> I was not a cool person. Um, okay. Uh, no, it's interesting. People sort of assume that because I got sober young, I got sober at 26 or younger, um, people are like, oh, you must have been like drinking for a long time or, you know, drugs in high school and things like that. And I was like, nope, I was very straight laced. 
uh, in high school when it came to breaking rules and doing anything. Um, I'm, I'm a recovering conservative Catholic mm-hmm. and that was a big part of the rules I followed and the, the beliefs I had about what made me a good person and what made me better than other people. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, I didn't start drinking until I was in college. and t- So I, di- I didn't take my first drink until I was about 20 and I stopped at 26. So I had a very, I got like a, a really quick PhD uh, in drinking in just six years. Packed a lot in, huh? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so theater kid growing up then? Yeah, yeah. I was always, you know, performing uh, things in school and living rooms and things like that. My brother, my older brother is an actor as well. Um, We have a lot of people in our family. Like my great grandfather was on Broadway in like the 19 teens. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. You go back even further and I'm distantly related to Maude Adams who famously like played Peter. She like, I don't know if she originated the role of Peter Pan, but she played the role of Peter Pan up until she was like in her sixties. Um, oh my. Yeah. So, so sort of, uh, you know, it, it, it runs in the genetics, but yeah, it was yeah, always something it, that I did in, in the blood. So were your parents encouraging for you to be a theater kid? I know a lot of parents, they will encourage their kids actually as they're younger, but as they grow, I think there's an expectation that they'll grow out of it. <laughs> uh, but was that your experience or were your parents kind of, since that was in the family, thinking that you had some big dreams you could go after? Yeah, it's always interesting. I feel like I grew up, my my dad uh, was a teacher as I was growing up and my mom didn't work because we just had so many kids. And so she just like, you know, maintained the home. Um, so we just didn't have a lot of money growing up. I I grew up thinking that we were poor and then I I met people who grew up poor, and I was like, oh, okay, middle class <laughs> poor is different than legitimate than, poverty. than poverty, right? Yes, and so, but but you know, we grew up in um, comparison, not having a lot of money, and instead of that being something that I bucked up against, like the lesson I learned from that is sort of money isn't important, money isn't something that should rule your life, and you know, I don't know. There's a, I unpack a lot of that with my therapist still about like, (laughs) we need money to live. You know, I can't make decisions based on money or I don't, I don't want to make decisions based on money, but also like I need to, I'm an adult person who needs to pay rent. Right. Um, So you can't just follow your heart. Right. And it's one of those things that's so hard and something that I talk about with my therapist or when I was in therapy, I, I graduated this summer and, and my therapist and I decided I didn't need it to at least for a little while. And, but we talked a lot about values and that's what it sounds like to me. What I'm hearing is you don't want to value money in that way. However, your values don't pay your bills. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing with theater, you know, is that I made, so I majored in theater uh, at college. I went to Loyola in Chicago and that's what brought me to Chicago uh, in the first place. And yeah, where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And Dan's then, a big fan of Cincinnati. I think I am a big fan oh, of Cincinnati. Man. You like the sports and the chili and all that stuff. Yeah, I like my cousins and my aunt and uncle. That live there. <laughs> yes. That's good. And that's you definite... know, I do like the chili. Oh, yes. oh no, no, no. I'm not, we're not going to even talk about this. I could go on for way too long. Uh, let me see. Can I mute your mic? I can. Let's talk chili for a second. It's Ugh. awesome. Uh, are you Skyline or are you um, um, Gold, uh, Star. Gold Star? Gold Star. I will say I abstain. I abstain from chili culture mainly because. Um, well, I've muted her mic too. So now I'm going to tell you guys about how good chili is from Cincinnati. <laughs> oh, I don't even know how to unmute you. <laughs> oh, you really did mute me. I was like, here we go. No, um, it's, it's, it's very visually, it's not aesthetically pleasing, the chili. Um, I also think I hung out with a lot of boys in high school who ate a lot of chili and that 
it's just enough to turn you off visually. Right. It I looks can... like diarrhea was the words that I was Correct. going to use. Correct. Those were the words I was going to use. So I recognize yeah. when you say not visually pleasing, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. If it, so we can be friends. Yeah. If it looks the same going in, then it does going out. I just have, I'm a little <laughs> questionable about it. Oh, I can't believe we just alienated Cincinnati. Okay. So- <laughs> oh, 513 Bengals. Okay. Over the line. Emilio Estevez. Are we back? You know, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think you got him back. Nice. Okay. Yeah, degrees, yeah, yeah. You know. All the good stuff. So mm-hmm. you left. <laughs> so I left. Um, yeah, I left and I went to Chicago. I I came to Chicago for college in like August. And then in September, the White Sox won the World Series. So I was like, oh, this is a magical place. And yeah, no, I just really <laughs> loved Chicago um, and doing theater in Chicago especially was I mean, it's different than anywhere else in the country. You know, there's just so much opportunity and so much going on. Um, it's such an interesting community. So, yeah, that was a really fun. It, it was it was a really fun place to be for like learning about the arts. Okay, and, totally. And you said, I'm sorry, you said Loyola is where you went. Yes, go Ramblers. Okay. okay. Yes, okay. our. Uh, our star of episode two went to Loyola as well, Francis, neighbor Francis. So shout out to the the Ramblers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you made it to twenty without having a drink. What 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 made you change at twenty? Like I I started drinking at eighteen, like right when I went to college. And you didn't right away. So was was that intentional? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of this thing of again, the the kind of the thread that I've looked back on is um, being better than other people, like being um, morally better that, mm-hmm. that because I was making choice and especially being like a young woman, it was like, well, I'm not going to get myself into trouble and girls who drink get themselves into trouble, um, which is very, you know, and I'm saying this facetiously now looking back because that isn't how the world works or that isn't, that isn't the truth. But at the time it felt like I'm going to be smarter and, you know, have my head on my shoulders more than, than these other kind of people. Um, It also was like part of my personality, you know, it was like, I don't drink and that's who I am. Um, And then it kind of was getting to a point of, it didn't, it wasn't paying off as much. Mm-hmm. Like it, it just sort of, um, it was cramping my style to, to be <laughs> honest. And and I also was having to take care of a lot of people. Um, the other thing I, that I think that's interesting about addiction is I, I'm an addict. I've been an addict my entire life. I was born an addict. I'll die an addict. It was just, it's just that alcohol is a very powerful revealer of addiction. But through my entire life, I've had addictive tendencies. I, that's why I funnel things, like funnel things through my personality, you know? So it, it, it's interesting. People will say like, oh, if you had started drinking earlier or if this had happened, this had happened. And I'm like, no, it, it's, it was going to happen at some point. Um, yeah. And overall, I think I'm lucky that it happened the way that it did in that I survived it. Uh, I continue to survive it. And it, I don't know, but it, but yes, I, I re- sort of reached a point at 20 where I was like, <laughs> mainly like, oh, you know how I'll get some attention is if I start to drink. Like I threw a big party. It, you know, it was this big deal thing. And it was kind of, it, it was seeking that attention that I felt like I wasn't getting. So it was planned. This was Eileen's first drink. Mm-hmm. And it was it something that you actively thought like I'm missing out. You said you wanted attention, but what, what were the thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, I was missing out. I was, I was missing out on uh, being able to like make mistakes and, and chalk it up to being drunk and 
you know, especially being sort of a repressed uh, little girl from Ohio, you know, it was like any, any mistakes I would make drunk, whether those were like socially, sexually, whatever you can, when you can blame it on drinking, you don't have to take responsibility for it. And I can still say that I'm a good person. I can still say I'm better than everybody else. I can still maintain that high moral ground, you know, because, because you have the excuse of alcohol. Um, but what's interesting about the, like, there was a, a party and a big plan and everything. And a couple nights before the big party and the big plan, like I was just hanging out with some people at someone's apartment. They were drinking a little bit. I was just kind of bored, not feeling like I was a part of things. And so I went into the kitchen by myself and I just started drinking out of the bottles that were on the counter. And like, you know, doing it very quickly, just taking like little shots out of bottles. And then somebody came in and I was very like, pretended it didn't happen. So from my first drink, there was a sense of shame and guilt and hiding and, and desire. Um, yeah, so it, it was, a, it's really interesting how the reality of the first drink was different than the sort of the um, sheen of it. The like, oh yeah, we're having a bit, this is like a big kind of coming out party for me, <laughs> like my little cotillion. But actually I had been guzzling somebody's, you know, Bacardi in their kitchen two nights before. I feel like this is the plot. This is matching the plot of very problematic movies that have been made in the past. But the party was the prom and the first drink was someone's virginity. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I was actually sitting here wondering if there was temptation, like once you decided to do it, to not wait for that party. And was there actually a temptation or was it spur of the moment? Just I don't feel like I'm involved right now with this gathering. I, I, I need to do something to change that. Yeah, I mean, it, it from from what I can remember, and it's hard because I've told this story before, and so then, you know, the the difficult thing about narrativizing your life is then you like you if you put it into a nice ten minute piece, and then you're like, what did? But wait, was that the, what really happened? <laughs> um, how did I really feel? Rather than like reflecting on how I felt. Um, but I was pretty manic in college, especially in terms of like my emotions. I had, I had no real control over my emotions. Um, I was very quick to anger. I was very quick to uh, like exponential joy. I, I was just very unbalanced um, in both like experiencing my emotions and showing them. And so I had also just kind of like bad social anxiety because of that. And I think that this, it really, and what would happen, you know, in the coming years was it would, the, the great thing about alcohol is that it numbs your anxiety mm -hmm. and it takes away that self-consciousness. And so I think that was sort of what I, that was what I was seeking. And that is what I was attracted to about it. Um, Okay. Yeah. So you said you felt shame that first time where you were hiding it, but do you remember other feelings that it evoked? Was there an immediate, Oh, I need more or did that build? Okay. Oh yeah. It was incredible. I mean, it really is like chasing that first high. Like I've never felt as exhilarated as that first drink. And like, and this was oh, good. Oh, I was just going to say nothing in my life, no other stimulation, no other experience has ever met that, uh, met that mountaintop. Like it's, and, and that, um, you know, that didn't, it didn't feel necessarily all good. Like, I think, you know, I recognized pretty quickly, like, oh, wow, I really, really love this, huh? intellectually, you know that you shouldn't love it so much, <laughs> but it's hard when it, it, it was everything, you know? 
and I also spent my uh, my early early twenties through through my current life, but um, I spent my early twenties in Chicago, dirt poor, hanging out with art kids. And man, it is easy to get out to go to a party every single night to find something to do to drink beer or whatever you're drinking all the time. If you want to, it is there and available and you can find a whole lot of people that want to do that with you in this town. Well, and it's almost necessary. Like that's the connective tissue of whether you're in theater, improv, performance art, stand up, like, and I think the world is getting better in the past 10 years, but I mean, cheap venues for shows are at bars. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fu- like fundraisers come order two drinks for our theater company, you know, and it was very much part of the culture of creativity at that time. Yeah. And I went out with a woman fairly recently and she said at the start before, when we just started talking, she's like, I, I don't really drink. And I can go months without drinking, so I can say that I don't really drink these days either. I mean, I do, but it's few and far between. And when I asked her where she wanted to go, she was like, well, dive bar sounds good. And she said something very similar to what you just said. She goes, well, unfortunately, humans uh, tend to socialize over alcohol, or at least Americans uh, I know not just Americans. I don't want to speak for all humans, though. Yeah. So, yeah. And we ended up and had a drink or two. And even though that's not what either one of us values and prioritizes when we go out, because yeah. that's what you do, especially in Chicago and especially in a Chicago winter, because there aren't a lot of opportunities to get outside. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, after 8 p.m., you know, like yeah. you can go to dinner, but you you can't go to coffee after a certain point. You can't just go like, so it's, it's interesting to me just in terms of both socializing and dating and anything like that. It, it, it is present, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And what was the party like then? So when you got to the party where you're supposed to be having your first experience with alcohol and know inside of you that this isn't, did that bring other feelings up or was it just, Hey, there's booze here. Let's, let's do this. I hear it was a great party. No, it, it, (laughs) it, 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 from my memory, it was a really fun time. Um, and it was like, I was sort of like on display. I, it was a weird thing where I was acting like a zoo animal. And so people were watching me like a zoo animal, you know, it was sort of like, what's she going to do? And then I would be like, I'm going to do something crazy. But it generally was was a pretty tame um, thing. It was just, you know, it, it was fun. And, and uh, it was um, a lot of just silliness at first. Mm-hmm. I think my drinking made me loose. And that was exciting to me to not feel anxiety, to not feel uptight, to not feel judged or judging in any way. Um, And I think if you can stick with being buzzed, if you're a person that can do that, that's pretty pleasant. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I, I wanted to, once I started blacking out, which I, I blacked out the, for the first time pretty quickly, just because I didn't have a a lot of experience drinking Mm -hmm. and the idea of blacking out. Well, it was scary, but it was also just like the, the idea that you can just turn off your brain and like, I have a very loud brain. I have a very, you know, I always sort of say like, I have a very broken brain and anxiety and depression and all that sort of stuff. Like ever since I was a little kid and the idea of turning that brain off and not, not being quote, quote, responsible for what you do was so uh, alluring. And um, yeah, that's how I would drink for a, for a good, good few years. That was my uh, habit. When you first blacked out, you said it was scary, but was it also a milestone, kind of a weird milestone in some way? Like 
your other friends have talked about blacking out before. Now you've joined the club. Yeah. Yeah. So the first time I blacked out was I was at, um, I went to go see a show at the Goodman theater, which Mm -hmm. is a very prestigious theater in Chicago and all through the country. And so, uh, you know, it would be a place that you would think like, let's, let's make some good impressions here. But it was the opening night of the show. It was like even an opening matinee of uh, their kid show. And so they had an open bar of wine. And I got so drunk on wine that like the poor, you know, 22 year old bartender had to be like, you're cut off. I think I, I, I think I must have still been underage as well. I don't know why they didn't, that didn't come into play, but then for some reason, my friends and I that were there, like we, we walked towards Michigan Avenue. I think maybe we we're going to take the bus or something. Somehow we ended up in the borders uh, that's no longer there, RIP borders. And I <laughs> was like sitting on the floor reading children's books aloud in a, in a very um, not subtle way. I was like, and again, it's maybe like 4 p.m. And <laughs> Then somehow, I think somebody had to like actually get a car to drive me home because I was so drunk and this was before Uber, before taxis. I don't know how they got me home. And they got me home and I climbed into my bathtub fully clothed and then they tried to make me eat food and then I threw up everywhere. Um, This is all secondhand knowledge, but it was sort of like, great, okay. But, and, and for some reason that was not, it did not land as, oh, how embarrassing. I don't want to do that again. Or, you know, what irresponsible, like to have to put all my friends through that. I was like, cool. That was great. (laughs) One of the things that I've learned from doing this podcast is that in the past, I looked at the culture that we have around drinking that we were just talking about a minute ago. And I thought that there comes a point in your life where it's no longer you being a kid and doing dumb things and getting too drunk. And then suddenly you're an adult. Well, I mean, you're all, but you might always be an adult during this time, but suddenly there's almost an age cutoff is the way I felt about it. Like you grow out of that, but I've also learned too, that that's not so true that the addiction is there but it's the other people who kind of normalize it and you see they do it, but they might do it once a year. They might do it once a month, but it's different from them and where it's coming from. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, that's a lot of my friends grew out of partying hard, especially because, you know, it was a recession. Everybody had to work a full-time job while doing theater at night. And it was a very punishing schedule in our early twenties. And like, you know, I alienated a lot of people. I lost a lot of friends because they were just not interested in the obvious self-destruction. And some people tried to talk to me about it. And I mean, I, I, I will also say too, like, trying to navigate that conversation when you are all in your early twenties is not just not so easy. Um, and it's the, the kind of the old fallback that like, you can't diagnose somebody else with addiction. You, you, you have to diagnose yourself pretty much. Mm -hmm. You can't really, you know, there's little tests you can take online or whatever, but you can't get a blood test and, you know, you, and say, oh, yes, you are an alcoholic. You have to sort of reckon with that. Um, but yeah, a lot of people uh, left my life because they just were not interested in the person I was becoming. I just, you know, again, and I think my my dysregulation of my emotions was just amplified by drinking. And I became a much more violent person both emotionally and sometimes physically. Like when I was drunk, I would be screaming at people. I would be walking up to people and and saying things I didn't really mean, but they were horrible, mean things. You know, I would be like, fuck you. I hate you. I've always hated you. And then I would 
the person would say, why would you say that? And I was like, oh, I don't even feel that way about you. It wasn't like, now I can tell you the truth. It just became a, a, a pain, cruelty kind of thing. So, um, but at the same time, it made me feel a specific way that I wasn't willing to give up. Mm-hmm. When others talked to you, was it an intervention or just one-on-one conversations where people tried to say, hey, you need to cool it? When it was friends that were my same age, you know, it was just a little bit messier. It, you know, it just wasn't as, none of us knew how to talk about that kind of thing. So it was more just like bitchy <laughs> on, <laughs> on all of our parts. Um, but I did have just, a, it was about a year and a half in of me drinking that my mother did ask me to stop drinking for the first time. You know, I, I think I said, I think I said to her, I'm drinking too much. And she was like, well, just stop then. Because she didn't have the language for that either. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as we had a lot of alcoholism in our family, the genetic uh, predisposition of acting and creativity and alcoholism is <laughs> very DNA-based in my, sure. my case. Um, but a lot of the addiction in our family was secret, was not talked about. It was not dealt with in a in in the light. It was all shame-based lies about, you know, oh, so-and-so never got a DUI. It was just that their dog was in the car and that's why they got pulled over by the police. And it's like, wait, but they blew up into the, <laughs> the, the dog doesn't have to do that. So, you know, I think my parents were both, um, and we had many conversations over the years where I would be drunk at home, you know, on, on a visit and, or I would say to them, I'm drinking too much. And it would just be like, for, they would just say, you know, oh, you should just, you should stop. And I would be like, yeah, you're right. I should stop. But then something would happen that I would need to drink about, you know, like I just couldn't get through being in the world. You know, it was like, of course I deserve to drink. I have to wake up and go to my job. Of course I deserve to drink. I'm having a bad day. You know, there was nothing that was worth not drinking. What did your drinking look like when you were saying that you were drinking too much? A lot of it was I would I would be kind of carefully measured to because I learned eventually, like drink a little bit at the party and then drink till you black out at home, you know, like wait to do that at home. Um, and I, I was with a person at the time I was with someone for almost the entirety of my drinking who was very codependent, very, um, I feel like people say toxic relationship a lot. And I don't know that I would even say that it was just two codependent people who, hated each other and dated for five years, you know, so unhealthy. We'll call it unhealthy. Yeah, not great. (laughs) Not great. And, you know, I think that again, that idea of like being better than other people or being morally or intellectually above other people was something very important to both of us. And yeah, man, you guys sound obnoxious. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> Two of you hating each other, but morally superior to everybody else around every time you went to a party. <laughs> the worst. Yeah, he was a theater major and a philosophy major. It was just, oof, oof. But uh, yeah, it was also, you know, it was like my first serious relationship, really. And from the get-go, he <laughs> it was like, I don't really find you attractive or I don't really like you, but the fact that I'm willing to be with you despite all of that shows like how much I really love you. Okay. So, so toxic is the word. Toxic, (laughs) toxic is the word. Yeah. (laughs) And to be fair again, like my behavior through all of that, uh, yeah, we, we enabled each other a lot and, (laughs) 
yeah, just just bad choices all around. So back to the drinking yeah. at that yeah. time, was it daily? Pretty much. Yeah, it was pretty much every day. It it started to become like I couldn't really go to sleep without drinking. Um, and I'd always had trouble falling asleep. Again, I have the busy mind, the, you know, really hard to just quiet and settle. Um, and I'm, I'm a night owl. And so mm. all that kind of feeds into needing, um, needing to turn off your brain. Uh, so that even if I wasn't like partying, it was, let me watch a show and drink till I black out, which, mm-hmm. you know, just felt very normal after a while. Um, it just very habitual. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I never progressed to drinking during the day or in the mornings very often. You know, it would be like an occasional day drinking celebratory thing. But, oh, Sunday fun day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be like, oh, be great. But yeah, so, it was always like an at night kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. And so you're drinking through your 20s. You're dating this philosophy major. <laughs> When's it go off the rails? Like, do you hit a rock bottom, which is why you stop? Yeah. Well, so this guy and I, we got to a point where it was like, you know, we should either get married or we should break up. And we moved to California together. <laughs> we were like, we'll do neither of those things. I was going to say, we'll... option C. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> option C. It's like Run something away. needs to change. Right. And it was like, wow, I've alienated a lot of people, pushed a lot of people away. Something needs to be different. Surely it, it isn't going to be me changing my behavior. It's going to be, let's get into a new uh, zip code. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I moved out to, to the Bay Area. Um, and it was my my aunt offered us to live in her home. She was like, look, you guys just graduated. Come out here, have an adventure. And it, and, and in so many ways, it was incredible. I, I was able to do theater full time and not have to have a survival job. And, you know, I worked on probably 20 projects over the course of 18 months. Um and, but it, it kind of put a bigger spotlight on hiding the drinking because I didn't want her to see how much I was drinking her, my, my uncle. Um, it was also, oh, so they were still in the house at the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. We were living with them. Got yeah. It. Yeah. And the Bay area has public transit, but it is so huge that like, it is. It does make more sense to have a car there. So we had a car and there were lots of times that we'd be getting in the car drunk. And that w- was something that was really scary to me. I did not like that I was doing that, but it also was, I wasn't going to quit drink. It was not enough to get me to quit drinking. Um, and, uh, yeah. So basically then, you know, then we broke up, thank goodness. And, uh, I had, I moved back home to Cincinnati because originally I was going to work to save up money for he and I to start a new life together. And then, you know, he called and broke up with me on the phone. Um, which again, I, I honestly, it was like a, Oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> thank God somebody did it. Cause I just wasn't going to, um, and while I was living at home, my two youngest brothers were still in the house who, and they were what, 13 and 16 or something. Um, and I was trying to figure out how to still navigate, how could I still drink, but not interfere with their lives. And there was one time where I, I went to downtown Cincinnati with a bunch of friends and I got so drunk. I tried to start a fight. Um, I punched my friend's sister's boyfriend in the face because he was trying to help me get into the cab. They took me to my parents' house. I started throwing up on the lawn. 
it was like two in the morning. You know, my mom had to literally like drag me into my room. And I will say like that, it, it still took me a couple weeks after that, but that was a big event that was like, it, oh, this really is affecting other people. And for my littlest brothers, it was like, is this something that they deserve to deal with? You know, right. had one of them been, had, had one of them heard the door and come up to drag me to bed? You know, is that something that needs to happen? Um, and it just was, there was, I, I, I will say I'm, I'm lucky that my rock bottom was as shallow as it was, that there wasn't an accident, that there wasn't anything, you know, other than the guys that I was, you know, trying to get in fights with, like <laughs> people didn't get hospitalized or anything. Um, yeah. Well, for your sake, uh, I think I speaking for Dan as well. I'm glad that you didn't hit the depths that some people have hit. And now it seems like the life has been turned around. So was that the main thing in your mind when you decided to get sober, the, the reaction, the, the idea that your young siblings might've been exposed to something like that? Yeah. You know, and the thing is they say like, you can't get sober for other people. And I, I, I think you, you can't stay sober for other people, but it, it can really help jumpstart. It it Um, can inform your decision-making. Yeah. And, you know, I think like a couple weeks after that, I went to AA for the first time, sort of just to check it out. And I was like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm, I'm not, you know, signed up yet, but I went in and you know, I, I've always, the, I've always had to deal with the, the voice in, in my head that says like, you are better than everybody else. And the same voice will also say you're the worst piece of shit on the planet and everybody hates you. And going to AA, you're like, oh, I'm no better than ever anyone here. And I'm no worse than anyone here. It is such an equalizer of age race, gender, creed, whatever, everybody is, has that commonality in AA. You are all peers. No one is better. No one's worse. No one has a more important story or, you know, more trauma equals better. Um, And and so I feel like that, that going to that meeting, you know, really was transformative and, or organizations help some people and they don't help other people. I, I feel like I've, I've had um, a mix of organization organizations like AA and community that I've found on my own to help uh, kind of foster recovery. Yeah. And community is such a huge thing. And I have even read a little bit about how, you know, there used to be a lot of community in church and as that's starting to go away, or at least become less prevalent in younger generations, that there's kind of this seeking of some sort of community. And there's pros and cons to that, right? Some of those communities can be destructive. Some of them can be amazing. And there's not that place where people just go by default as much anymore as they used to. And I'm glad you found your direction and why don't you tell us a little bit about that thriving? We, we survive and thrive and you're doing such great things. So talk to us a little bit about that right now. Um, Mm. You've had quite the creative career. It sounds like. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting. My first, you know, two years of sobriety about, I, I was, very afraid of talking about it, saying it was still very shameful, private, guilty, like as if it was, a, you know, a, it's a moral failing. It's there's something wrong with me that I couldn't, you know, just be normal. Um, and then I wanted to create work about it, like to tell stories, to 
do performance art, to write pieces about it. And it kind of was a, a hand in hand of like, again, this idea of coming out or, you know, revealing this through creative work. Um, and I find that for me, art is an empathy machine and it, it is something that uh, lets people, but also forces people to look at things that they have not experienced or perspectives that they may not have. And it forces them to empathize. And I, I have found that by sharing stories, by performing things, by narrativizing these kinds of things about my life, that uh, it, the, the more specific you are in creativity, the more universal the message is, mm-hmm. you know, and someone may not be an addict, but they can, they understand resilience. Someone may not be an alcoholic, but they, they know what it is to fuck up and mm-hmm. recover. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've also found that the more I talk about it, the more people, become comfortable talking to me about their experiences, whether they're addicts or whether their families of addicts. Yes. And just feeling less alone in the world. Yes. That has been like the biggest thing I've learned from this podcast. And I tell people that I had a decision to make. Was I going to talk about the things that happened to me in my marriage? Or was I just going to say, ah, she cheated and hide it. And isn't it freeing not to fucking hide that? Yeah. Well, and this is, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm 36 now and, you know, my thirties are much more, um, have been much more fruitful emotionally <laughs> than my twenties. Hell yeah. But it's also like, I think, I think one big part of that is, um, admitting when I've, then I can be wrong. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't, oh, actually, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, oh, I thought that was true. And I guess it's not true. Or, yeah, I did tell you to do that, but it's probably easier if we do it your way. Like the idea of being wrong in my twenties and in my sort of manic uh, time of life. And when I was drinking, it was so embarrassing to be wrong about anything. And it was like so embarrassing to admit you could be wrong. And now I'm like, I don't know a goddamn thing. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what that makes you, Eileen? A decent fucking human. There we go. <laughs> all right. I'm so happy to to hear all these things. And that's it, it it resonates so much with me, not through addiction, but I think there are so many commonalities in all of our mental health journeys and being vulnerable and open and talking about things. And Dan and I have made a podcast out of this stuff, and you've done creative works, and I admire you for that. I think that. I think a lot of people admire you've gotten to do things in your career that others don't get to do. Um, directing a play in Chicago. That sounds pretty fucking cool. If, if someone told you when you were a kid that you'd be doing that one day, would, would that, would you say that's my dream or well, you know, and, and what's interesting about this particular production is I, I was an intern at the building. So a different, different company took it over and, and all that. But I, I was an intern in the, in the same building, an unpaid intern. And I was, you know, literally picking up garbage that had been like shoved in the corners <laughs> of the dressing room. And now my name is on the marquee. You know, that's just, a nice, that's awesome. It's just I, a that nice is cool. I am yeah. absolutely going to get a picture of that. Yeah. And Eileen, your, your, your story is wonderful. And Again, decent fucking human. I'll say it over and over. I'll scream it from the hilltops. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. It's It's been yes. really, really fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, for sure. And for our listeners, just remember that Eileen's got to play. We've got a lot of listeners in Chicago. So one more time, what is it? It's called Household Spirits. It's a world premiere play by Mia McCullough playing at uh, theaterwit, theaterwit.org, and we open um, Thursday, October 19th. All right. I intend to see it. I'm definitely going to go. If any terrible fans want to go with me, just send me an email, podcast at positivelyterrible.com. 
or hit us up on our social media at Positively Terrible. And Eileen, thank you so much. It's been great. And as always, today has been absolutely, positively terrible. I met you back at Tonica Fest. I confess I was nervous and stressed because I thought you were the best. I was right.